Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, January the 16th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. We'll be joined in a little while by the Green Party leader, Eamon Ryan. But first, our political editor, Pat Leahy, is here. And Pat, there's really only one story, the most significant Commons defeat for a UK government since... People were mentioning Ramsay MacDonald in 1924, but it's even worse than that. So it's the worst defeat for a UK Prime Minister in the House in uh, in the history of the UK as a democratic entity. Other than that, though, things are going quite well. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, it was a massive, massive defeat, uh, I think. I mean, uh, our London colleague uh, Dennis Staunton is writing this morning that people were doing sweepstakes all around the pa- Palace of Westminster yesterday as to what the final margin of defeat would be. But um, uh, as, 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 as he writes, few of them had it at this sort of margin, 230 votes, really at the outer edge of the worst expectations for Mrs May. Certainly that was the reaction in Dublin where the vote was being watched perhaps more closely than anywhere else. Uh, in uh, in Europe, people I spoke to last night were taken aback, I think, by the scale of the defeat. Some of them, you know, the, the general anticipation was that it would be in the 100-200 region. Some of them were entertaining hopes that it would be uh, below 100, which I think would have put us in a completely different situation this morning in that the deal would have been seen as salvageable in something like its current form. I think the scale of the defeat this morning means it a is, couple of things. It is Monty Firstly, Python's parrot. Yeah, it, 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 that 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 deal or anything like it now, I think, uh, is dead. But also the transfer of power, the, the seeping away of power from the, the, the slow seepage of power away from Mrs May's administration towards Parliament on the subject of Brexit has become a, a kind of a biblical flood. I mean, she is now the she is now the the, the servant of the House of Commons. She almost admitted that herself last night in her speech after the result of uh, of the vote was announced in the chamber. What she will do now is see what the Commons wants and then go to Europe and try to get it, which I think, you know, means that the whole process has probably been set back several months. The hot take, as they say in Dublin last night, was that it almost certainly means that an extension of Article 50 is the most likely short-term outcome of this. Ultimately, sooner or later... Britain will have to decide what sort of Brexit, if any, it wants. That is the decision that will now be made in Parliament. Mrs May will be given the task, if she survives, and I expect she will, she will be given the task of implementing that decision or or agreeing what she can of that decision uh, with, with the EU. But that will take... Sometimes you think how long it took to do. Okay, okay, but 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 accepting the fact, and I think that seems to be wide, widespread agreement that the UK will not be leaving now on the on the twenty ninth of March. Uh, I was looking at um, 
Kiefer Hofstadt's uh, Twitter feed this morning and he was basically saying there's not going to be any automatic extension of Article 50. Uh, that we, we're not going to, he, The words he used were something along the lines of we're not going to continue to let the UK poisonous climate poison uh, European politics, I think particularly implied over the course of the, of the elections. So there has to be a plan of some sort or a process put forward, doesn't there? You don't just get the three months to kind of ruminate and argue a bit more. There has to be some set of objectives and a timetable to achieve something. Yeah, I think the rumination will have to be accelerated and Mrs May is bound bound by the Commons to come back by next Monday with some sort of a plan. I think what she will do once she gets today's motion of no confidence uh, out of the way, and that is assuming, given that the ERG have said they will support her, the DUP have said they will support her, that is likely that she wins tonight's motion, then I think she will have to consult across the Commons as to not what the final position would be, but as to what the process is for ascertaining the will of the Commons. And that will be a complicated business, not least because there are so many factions in the Commons now. You've almost gone back on the subject uh, of Brexit, at least, to a situation before modern political parties, whereas where instead of there being defined parties ruled by a whip, there's a number of factions which will uh, which will deal with one another. And that is going to be a very difficult and complicated business involving a lot of compromise, which has not been the hallmark of this process so far in the Commons between the different groups. So I think she will have to outline what that process is and then you know, then perhaps seek uh, uh, an early extension from from Europe. But there are constraints on uh, on Europe as well, not least the European elections at the end of June and or at the end of May. But last question on, on, on this particular subject right now, what's happened over the last 24 hours. How, if at all, has Jeremy Corbyn's carefully equivocal position on this changed or does it come under a new sort of pressure now? Uh, was he was he to some extent bumped into this no confidence vote today and what's the consequence of that in terms of the instructions that uh, his leadership was given at the Labour Party conference last autumn? Yeah, I, I think and that, that position at the Labour conference last autumn was itself a compromise or a bit of a fudge given the strength of the second referendum lobby within his own Party. So what the Labour position is is that they said they would seek a uh, uh, they would seek a general election, and if they fail to get that, then all options, including a second referendum, are on the table now. So they will, uh, you know, tonight's no confidence motion would be an attempt to uh, to procure that general election that is likely uh, to fail, though I'm wary of making uh, uh, very strong predictions about anything in Westminster at the moment. But that is likely to fail. After which time. I think you will see Corbyn forced by his own party to confront the possibility of a second referendum or of campaigning overtly for a second referendum. That would be difficult for him. Seems to me he is a, uh, a you know, he is by instinct a Brexiteer, even if his party is increasingly, uh, it seems, and according to surveys, pro uh, pro remain i mean in a way he has the same problem as uh, as as uh, as Theresa may but, has but you don't have to you don't have to be a remainer in order to believe that a second referendum is required 
think, because you know, I think clar- most clar- people, clarity is a huge is is a huge issue. Mm, I don't know about that. I think that most of the people who want a second referendum want it for the purpose of overturning uh, the result of the first. Well, but given that there's a certain amount of theological dancing on the heads of pins going on here, and indeed by Corbyn himself, because he's never actually come out straight and said that he's a Brexiteer. And he just equivocated his way through. Oh, he said that he voted uh, Remain and campaigned for Remain. But any observer, any fair observer of that uh, of that campaign, will have noticed a distinct reluctance. And he has said himself in the past that in, in the recent past that Brexit is going ahead and the will of the people must be respected. So he is does. It seems to me personally he does not want. Uh, uh, a second uh, referendum, but he might be forced by his party. I mean, one of the things that we've seen, we mentioned it earlier, is the uh, uh, is the assertion of its will by the Commons. I think one final note of caution about that, though, is that the House of Commons is an assembly of 650 men and women. It can't negotiate on anything. It can say what it wants, but it will be up to the government to secure whatever government to secure uh, an outcome and uh, or, or to affect, to secure the effect of uh, of what the, the, the will of the commons is. So, you know, uh, I, I think there are several stages left in this to go. Pat is sticking with us. We're going to be joined by Eamon Ryan. Eamon Ryan, you're very welcome to the Thank studio. Uh, thanks for coming in. Uh, what do you make of this shambles in Westminster? It's sad. It's sad to see the English political system in such chaos, in such discord, and and um, and it's very hard to see where they go from here. There are three possible options. It seems one is that they would crash out, which would be disastrous, not just for the immediate consequences. We had a meeting with Tonish to Simon Coveney yesterday when we were talking about the, what we would have to prepare for that, and it's frightening. But it's more frightening in the wider political sense that when you smash things, it's very hard to put them together again. The smashing of relations between Ireland and England, between England and the rest of Europe as well, would be very hard to put back. And and, and that would be a terrible tragedy if it happens. The second option is obviously a softer Brexit now, in a sense. Like that vote in the Tory party, that 120 vote, probably 70 or 80 of them were the hard Brexiteers who were voting because they just it's not strong enough for them. But probably 50 of them or so were people who wanted either to remain or a softer Brexit. And in some ways, I think... It'll depend on what way the Labour Party goes. If they say it seems that they may want to kind of a Brexit which is more aligned with the custom union and single market, that for us could be useful for this reason. I think there's been a such dishonesty in the English political system. They've painted the backstop as the centre of their woes. Oh, if only there wasn't the backstop. That was rubbish. That was dishonest in my mind. The backstop was a proxy for the fight that they were having on what, you know, how soft or not a Brexit you would have. The Treasury used the backstop in the UK to get a softer Brexit. They were, and they actually got what the European Union didn't want to give. They applied the backstop, not just in a sense to the Ireland, but they allowed that then to lever a customs arrangement for the entire UK, which was the softer Brexit that Treasury wanted. Um, I think with the vote, this to Pat there, what you're saying, I, I think he's right in a sense. The scale of the vote maybe in some way helps in this regard, is that no one can now pretend that that issue, you know, the backstop is the key issue. It's not. It, the key issue for them is how, whether they would be willing to actually have a customs, stay within the customs union and single market. And that's not to do about whether it's extended from Ireland back, you know, that reverse operation in its own right. That's a, that's one of the choices we have to make. Do we want to stay in with a much softer, much more custom, bre- breaching effectively Theresa May's red lines? Uh, I hope they do. The third option is that they vote again. And I suppose who knows what they would. I, I presume it would have to be a vote between um, 
that soft option and remaining. I, I, I don't think uh, anyone will present the vote for crash out what, or any government in the right mind. Pat's right. Governments can only really present referendums. It's hard to see how Parliament could put for agree on what the question in referendum would be. But but I hope because our, from the very start, our party, my colleague Caroline Lucas, I've been over to see a good few times. They are very centrally involved in the uh, people's vote again. What, does, what, what do the Green Party in the UK, what do they want the vote to be on? What do they want the option? They do to want be? the option of, of remaining. They want what they, as as vis a vis what as against vis-a-vis whatever soft Brexit, soft Brexit uh, Norway plus or something exactly, like that, so. um, and that's a difficult thing to do. As we know, it's more difficult for them than any of the second votes we've had because we were voting on a four hundred page treaty, not on a yes no. Do you want to leave? Um, so it's really difficult, and we have to be very careful. I think our, in our country, our job is to stay stumped slightly. Although we do have skin in the game because they brought us into the game in a sense with the, the whole attention on the backstop. But I, I hope they do stay. I think Europe is stronger with Britain in it. Uh, I think for Ireland, we've had such... Come back to the bigger picture. The benefits we've had of being a sister party in the union together with Britain in our relationships has been incalculable. It's not just about the economy. It's not just about the kind of technical customs, this, that and the other. It's about actually in our heads the equality we come to in a relationship with the United Kingdom when we're partners in the union together. And and I think the... So I hope they stay uh, still at this. I, I still think it's a, it's a long shot. It's bloody difficult. But it's as good an option or as good as chance of that happening as the other two that I mentioned. And I hope the first we avoid. But I'll come to the where Ireland is in relation to all this right now in, in a minute. But just in, in terms of what Eamon said, do you agree with him in terms of, say, for example, that a, a soft Brexit is more likely now? A soft Brexit or perhaps not leaving at all? I do. Yeah. And I think that's a consequence of the parliamentary numbers. I think that the will of Parliament is, is for a much softer Brexit than the deal that was presented or the aggregate position of the Tory party, the majority position within uh, the Tory party. And one of the consequences, uh, again, of this seepage of power towards Parliament away from the government, away from the executive, is that it makes a softer uh, a softer Brexit more likely, I think you will have the Norway Plus option uh, pushed over the next week. And to be clear, late. Norway Plus would mean, among other things, the four freedoms remain, including the movement of people, which, as Simon says, is one of those has been one of Theresa May's red lines, but but not the only one. And would have thought that a lot of the fifty two percent of the British electorate who voted for Brexit might ask, you know. Well, why are we doing it at all if we're retaining all these things, which were the reason why we were exiting in the first place? So we're still going to be signed up to them, but we won't even have an input into the decision making process. And we will be paying contributions to the EU. That seems to me to be a difficult sell in the UK, both in Parliament and uh, and were to come to uh, to a referendum. But one of the things that we have learned over observing this process over the last two years, 18 months or, uh, or so, is that there are no easy options. There are no options you would say automatically could command majority uh, majority support. That will be a process of working out what there is uh, the what there is support is the for. easy option is, is the no deal crash out. And it's easy in the sense that you don't that have to is, do anything. That is, that is it well, seems to me, the, the less likely now. And it, it is also an option that more people are against in Parliament than any of the other options. Hopefully. And it does depend, I think, a lot now what the Labour Party does. Um, and I think they're not coming from a good position. I mean, I think they've been dishonest. They were out there saying, Jeremy Corbyn has been saying in recent weeks, oh, the backstop is the problem. 
that's dishonest. The Labour Party, in conversations with the Irish government, I understand, and in our own conversations with them, were saying that they agreed with the backstop until it became a political tool to try and, you know, kind of for, the, for a short-term electoral whatever prospects. They've, they've used it. And I think they need to stop that. We need to start being honest, in a sense, with what their own position is. Um, and I think then can they get enough Tory backbenchers? Theresa May saying she's kind of talking about other parliamentarians. Actually, I actually think the key thing now in the Labour Party is those in the Labour Party who are marshalling their position. Can they get a majority with 70 or 80 or 90 Tories at least that would give the necessary majority for the, for the parliament to either vote again or else ha- have a people's vote again or else have a softer, so that soft option. I think that's one of the prospects that will come into view over, over the coming days. But you have to step back also and see what that would entail, which is essentially a Tory prime minister seeking to implement a Labour policy. She's lost her authority. And, uh, that's, and, uh, I mentioned Ramsay MacDonald earlier and there, there are some parallels with uh, the situation he ended up in in 1924. Look it up on Wikipedia. Um, in, in, relation to, in relation to Irish preparations, I mean, where are they at now, Pat? And how far can they be publicly made? Because is there, there, there's, there's a danger in being seen to make them, is there at some point? I mean, the DUP hop up and down and point every time the Irish government makes noises about what might or might not happen on the border and there were perhaps um, Shane Ross um, had some ill-judged words on the subject yesterday. I mean the Irish government has been making significant play over recent weeks of the extent of its preparations for a no deal outcome. It seems to me it's a bit lastminute.com in relation to many aspects, not all, but many aspects of it. Say for instance the legislative uh, question. There was four memos put to Cabinet yesterday, one on transport matters, one on medicines, one on the the legislation necessary to deal with a no-deal Brexit and the other on um, the uh, impending agreement between the two governments, the Irish and the British government, on uh, the maintenance of the common travel area after a no-deal Brexit. But there is this massive piece of legislation, a great omnibus Brexit bill, which is due to be published at the end of February, which will have, I think, you know, 17 different, uh, we'll deal with 17 different subjects, with 65 uh, statutory instruments accompanying it, something. There's this massive bill which is yet to be drafted. They hope to publish the heads of it by the end of next week, publish the text of the bill by the end of February and to pass it then by uh, the the middle of March. Text by mid-February and get it through both Stall and Shannon by mid-March. And it's only scratching if, the surface of what we have to do. Indeed. Done. But my, my my point is in terms of the preparations in this particular area necessary for a no-deal Brexit is that this was foreseeable some time ago. But we have this mad legislative dash to concertina everything into a couple of weeks of, you know, madly rapid drafting and legislating. Is that incompetence or does that just reflect the fact that I think it's perhaps people didn't think it was going to happen or perhaps it was seen as not politic to be seen to be making these sorts of preparations well, well out from the event. I think it would be a bit difficult, a bit harsh at this stage one to call the, it in One of the metaphors I thought was used, which is a good one, do um, you remember the film Bridge of the River Kwai where a British officer had to build this bridge across the river with using Japanese, the Japanese used the prisoners of war to build the bridge. And at the very end of the, of the um, film, uh, the, British, the Allied forces blow up the bridge and the British officer who, under the direction of the Japanese prison camps, have built the bridge, doesn't want to be blown up. So, oh, no, please don't um, get blown up anyway. 
I think Simon Coveney has done a good job in terms of keeping everyone informed and giving out the whole... The Irish diplomatic system has done a really good job in terms of how we've managed broadly the negotiations. We've kept Europe with us and so on. But it's a bit like that scene at the end where they bought into the withdrawal agreement that had been done as the be-all and end-all and thought it was going to get through maybe in the same way that Theresa May was slightly blind to. And, and they didn't... You know, that bridge is now gone. Um, and we're frantically at the last minute now trying to build other bridges if there is a, re- a Brexit deal. I think that's an image. It, it's, it's an interesting metaphor. I remember Alec Guinness, you know, on, on his knees staring up at the bridge, shouting madness, madness in the final shot of the bridge of the River Kwai. So it's not a, not a bad parallel. You've been quite nice about Simon Coveney there, but you're very critical of Fine Gael, the Green Party are, in terms of their environmental policies. Um, yeah, Fine Gael are, are all talk now about the environment, but they're, no, they're not doing anything in action. And even the talk they're doing is, is not the right sort of talk in some ways. It's all about, they started this summer, they had a green week in this last summer and kind of, oh, how virtuous we are. And it was all about putting the blame on the individual. Are you, are you doing the right things with your cups or are you doing, this, you know, that's an old-fashioned environmentalism that we've given up to several decades ago because it doesn't work. The job of the political system is to make it easy for people to do the right thing, is by their actions to actually create the systems that allow us transition. Yes, we all have individual responsibility, but we don't need Leo Varadkar kind of pointing, wagging the finger at and saying how virtuous I am and you should be too. Um, by their actions, they should be known. And they've been, as John Fitzgerald, the head of the Climate Advisory Committee, says, we under this government are going, heading in the, rapidly in the wrong direction. Um, all, every analysis uh, in Europe by independent agencies shows that. There, even yesterday, I was, I was saying in the Dáil, we, just the last day of the Dáil before Christmas, we had, there was a climate emergency bill in committee, which Fine Gael killed, or tried to kill. I think what they, the way they did it was unconstitutional. I'm hoping we can get it revived. But they're all talk. And at, in reality, what they're doing is actually styming the effort. Now, I, th- I hope that can change. I, I'm not going to, you know, if they're really coming on board and really want to make this happen, fine. We'll, we'll work with them. And, and, but it can't be just rhetoric. It can't be just spin. It can't be based on of an opinion poll which shows to them that the public now, the consciousness around the loss of nature, the need for climate action, the pollution that surrounds us needs to be addressed. It can't just be a PR response to that. It has to be a real response. So what about, I mean, I think most people are agreed that a key part of that kind of strategy, which you describe is some form of uh, carbon tax, mm. uh, increasing gradually over over a period of years in order to nudge people in, in, in different behavioural directions, I suppose. Fairness, if I'm kicking Leo on the other hand, I'd say to credit where there was um, on the carbon tax issue, before Christmas again in the Dáil, I asked the question to me on Martin, to Mary Lou, to Brendan Howland and every party, could we get agreement on how we do this issue of carbon price? And in fairness, the Taoiseach wrote in and agreed with the approach that I was suggesting. And it's this, that we would introduce in the next October budget a €20 Euro a tonne increase in carbon. Currently, we have a carbon tax. We do it the exact same way that we have it at the moment. There's currently €20 Euros a tonne. We're saying put an additional €20 Euros a tonne. And each year thereafter to 2030, you would increase each year by €5 Euros a tonne. And that does what all the experts are saying we need to have. It's a signal, a price signal on carbon that affects the, the whole range of different actions. Um, now, critically, because that's not popular and it's understandable why it isn't to affect people in the pocket, 
is that any every single cent that would be raised would be returned to the people in a cheque in the post. In the same way that in the Irish Water Refund, if you remember that, people got a cheque in the post. So we've done the logistics, as it were, in terms of houses and how you do that. And that would be a flat cheque. It, so it would be... The revenue raised would be returned to the citizens pro rata, <coughs> per capita. The advantage of this process is it gives the signal, but it not, it's not seen as a revenue-raising punitive measure. It would benefit all the analysis that the ESRI and others have done shows that it would be progressive in the sense that those on lower incomes would get a net positive cash contribution. They tend to not use as much resources, not use as much carbon, and therefore it would be socially beneficial. Those on lower incomes would benefit. Um, and, and I think it gets over the difficulty that Macron has had in France and elsewhere. We have a public revolt on this issue. We cannot afford that. We need to change. We need to avoid start paying the huge fines we're going to pay if we don't start to change. But also one of the benefits of it is carbon tax gets all the attention. It's always the first question you're asked on this issue. Mm. It's not actually the big deal. The big deal we need to do is to change our transport system and that requires, carbon tax won't do that. That requires political decisions around investing in cycling, bus, public transport infrastructure. It needs to change, our, we need to change Irish agriculture. Carbon tax won't do that on its own. We need to move towards really supporting Irish family farms and paying farmers properly, not just allowing the industrial processing system benefit from the current system. We need a whole new uh, energy, electric vehicles grid and energy system. That Carbon tax won't deliver that. So it will have real benefit in terms of giving a signal, but it'll, give it maybe, it'll deliver maybe 5 or 10 or 15, 20% of the change we need. The other 80% requires political commitment and leadership. One of the advantages of the approach that I'm suggesting on the carbon tax is that to a certain extent for 10 years, the political question on that is agreed. And then we can focus on our real job, which is actually changing the transport system, food system, energy system. And, and that's why I hope we can get agreement I, I, on it. Accepting all that, but just to come back to the carbon tax, because it is almost sort of the first brick in the wall, I, mm. I, I, I think you're acknowledging there. And, 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 and looking at the French example, one of the things, and you know, there's a lot going on behind the Gilets, the Gilets Jaunes movement in various kind, kinds of ways, but in relation to that, to the carbon tax in France being the sort of the, the, the spark that lit it, the, the argument seemed to be that there are specific types of people who uh, who are living in certain places and have certain means at their disposal as a result of changes in society over the last 20 or 30 years, changes that, that you and perhaps I might think were, were not ideal in terms of dispersed settlements, people living on the peripheries of cities, not having access to public transport and not necessarily being people on very high incomes, but people who are very reliant on carbon-based transport and that these were the people who suffered and they... That, you could see exactly the same thing happening here in Ireland. Couldn't you see all the development which has happened here in the last 20 or 30 years of people living in, in, you know, in dispersed dwellings, people who, who, who really currently have no options but to have two you cars could, in the drive? You and could, so and that's why what political choices make are important. And I'm saying, and we're going into these European elections with our candidates saying clearly, this is the, by addressing climate change, it is the chance for us, it is the best chance for us to progress the development of rural Ireland that actually we should be really determined and specific in the investment decisions we're about to make to actually make sure this benefits rural Ireland. And I, various examples of how that could work. One of the things we need to do is to improve our houses to make them energy efficient. We need to ret what they call deep retrofit, where you put solar panels on the roof, really good insulation, you put a heat pump in so your heating system is not by fossil fuels, it's electric, you have an electric charging point for your car. 
we need to be doing at least 50,000 houses a year. We're probably doing about a couple of hundred at the moment. So it's a massive scaling up. It's a 50 billion euro project. I think we should specifically target houses in rural Ireland for a whole variety of reasons. Firstly, they're easier to do. It's easier to put in an electric charging point in a one-off bungalow than it is in a terraced house in the middle of a city. Um, but it's also, they're going to require a huge amount of workers to do this. We don't need, it'd be very difficult at the moment if you went into Dublin, let's say, Central Dublin, say, we're going to have a huge new building project there, which is already in the overheating building boom area. Far better to go into Tipperary and Longford and Westmeath and all the r- rural, more rural counties and say, we can house our workers there. We can bring our people back from, young people back from Australia, bring, bring them back to Kerry and Mayo and Donegal and improve the houses in those counties first as well as social houses first, by being strategic and political in how we do it. And it's the same with the whole range of areas. Like we need to move towards 20,000 hectares of new forestry to store carbon. Um, that's going to benefit rural Ireland. That's going to create jobs in rural Ireland. So yes, we have to be very conscious of that, that we don't make the mistakes that some other countries have made by being proactive in where, how we plan this transition we're going to make, a just transition. Is there a sense, Pat, that these issues are back on the agenda more now than they were five or six years ago? Oh, I think so. I don't think they were on the agenda at all five or six years ago, certainly not the domestic political agenda. And, uh, you know, I, I think that Fine Gael, I think, will bring forward this plan. Richard Bruton is talking about this whole of government plan that he's going to bring forward over, uh, uh, over the coming months. I, I'm, I'm not sure how convinced Fine Gael are uh, about it, but I think that they will do it. They are acutely aware of political dangers. I don't think it's the gilets jaunes that they that is worrying them. I think it's the experience of the water charges here, and that's why they're so conservative and so nervous about a carbon tax because they are by increases in in the existing carbon tax because they are afraid it will be uh, it will be uh, seen and treated as uh, as another levy on uh, on on people and will provoke the sort of response. That, um, uh, well, isn't there another level in terms of what Fine Gael are that, that, for example, the statements by the Taoiseach over the last couple of months about tax reductions, the kind of massive investment in infrastructure and everything which Eamon is talking about, would have to take those things off the table? Well, it wouldn't necessarily, to be honest, because there is an existing massive plan for investment in infrastructure over uh, over the next 20 years, the Ireland 2040 yeah, plan. But, yeah, but what, the, what Eamon is talking about yeah. is, uh, no, there, I think, a lot of this reshaping is going to, that. A lot of it's going to be much bigger. We're going to require a huge amount of private financing for this. I mean, the scale of the change people don't understand, it, it, this is changing everything. And for the better, it's not a negative. It's actually more efficient, more productive, uh, more local community, stronger community, better social economy. But, and this is the reason why I'm sceptical about Fianna Gael and why they're coming out and saying, oh yeah, we're all on for this and uh, have you got your little keep cup or whatever. Um, the scale of change, the National Development Plan, Project Ireland 2040, which was all the marketing, all the everywhere, Project Ireland, this, that and the other. It was never climate proofed when it was signed off on. They never even assessed climate a year ago. This is less than a year ago. They didn't even think about it. But now realise, because we're in a European Union process for 2030, that, oops, we actually need to take that into account. And what they found is, what we have found in the climate committee we're on, is that actually Project Ireland will only bring us 30% of the direction we need to go in that next decade. So Project Ireland has to change. And it's changing for the better. It's changing, saying Project Ireland is still all about dispersed population, bigger roads, more and more roads. We're widening every motorway on the approach road to Dublin. 
what madness is that? At the same time, they were now talking about the Dubliners about we're going to take your front garden because we have to cope with all this traffic and they're widening the approach roads. That has to change. We need to start... I think taking, taking the front gardens is to allow room for more public transport. Yes, but unfortunately, they're also keeping the roads because they've because all these cars are coming in. And you actually then have to make a political decision. What we're saying, let's make a really big political decision here. We're going to stop the development of Ireland around the motor car and start developing it around the individual and creating local communities that are not just dominated by cars. And the benefit of it is not just environmental. The car-based system does not work. Does not work in Galway, does not work in Cork, does not work in Dublin. And we all know this. Like anyone can see it, anyone driving at the moment. And we're an economy which is growing 6 7% per annum. And it's like the Richter scale. When you get a 6% growth in traffic, it's not like you have a 6% growth, growth in gridlock. It actually grows 20%. And we very quickly are going to reach a bottleneck point where our economy does not work, our society does not work, because we've let, gone down this car-based transport system. It's just one of, these are just one of the changes we need to make. But that's the scale of change we need to make to switch away from that. And the Citizens' Assembly, fair play to them, recognise this. They actually said, yeah, flip the transport budget completely. Change development plan, national development plan. Now, Fianna Gael have a choice. They're out there talking. Simon, or, um, Lee was out there the other day saying, oh, we're all into this now. Well, the test is, are you willing to change your national development plan? Give up on your real big marketing pet project in terms of where we're going. Yeah, you see, that's not, what he's got to do. I'm, I'm not sure they are. And partly that's not because they are anti-green or anti-environmental the, themselves, though they might not, many of them regard it as a high priority. It's because they fear a political backlash from people like farmers, from older people who want to put the fire on during the day, from people in rural Ireland. And that's why I go back that's to, the, yeah, come back to what I'm so you have saying. You have to win yeah. the argument. Yeah, and we will that. win the argument. I am talking to the IFA, the Irish Nature and Health Farmers, the ICMSA. We are absolutely now tight as anything with those farming organisations when they're starting to wake up and rise and the farmers in this country are starting to wake up that that status quo that Fianna Gael represent isn't actually representing the average Irish farmer. The average Irish farmer is 57 and ageing. How are we going to get the 30-somethings in? They're going to come in because they're going to get better paid for looking after nature as well as providing high quality food. They know that what we're saying is actually the future of Irish farming because they know that that's the way the common agricultural policy is going. So I think that's the change we have to actually... I suppose the point then is in order to win the argument, the Green Party needs to be a larger force in Irish politics. And we have electoral contests coming up in May, both for European Parliament and local local councils. I mean, your party was almost extinguished uh, in the 2011 um, election. It has come back a little since then. What what are your sort of objectives in, in May? We want to at least double and preferably treble our representation in councils and in the Dáil and in the European Parliament. We don't have any at the moment, but we would like to win two seats at least. Uh, we're running everywhere. Um, we run every Dáil seat. Where we've uh, we've three candidates in the European elections. We've some really good councillors. We want to go to, uh, as I said, double and treble our representation. And actually. It's about the specifics of delivering this sort of change in local communities. So those councillors to, in every part of the country, to start making it happen and start making it happen in a way that's not a negative, not a punitive, not a pointing, winger, blaming, whatever. It is working with other political parties, working with the public administrative system to make Ireland green and to make it green in how we, our quality of our food, in the quality of nature that we're living within, 
uh, on a local level as well as the big global perspectives. And when we get to the next general election, which is not too far away, uh, no matter what happens, and presumably you'll be as- aspiring to increase your representation in the Dáil as well, it's quite clear that both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael uh, want, to, want not to be in a confidence and supply arrangement the next time around. So they'll be looking around for potential government partners. Are you open for business for both of them, depending on how it pans out? Yeah, and I've always said this because my experience in government is you can actually deliver, you can actually change things, you can actually make positive contribution. Um, and I think there's a certain obligation on our side. There is an urgency. I mean, OK, we're talking about Brexit here today, we're talking about all the big issues. There's a wider, bigger issue that if we don't start being urgent now in terms of making the transition, there is a there is a, a bigger existential threat facing us in terms of global threats around loss of nature, loss of biodiversity. It's a real crisis around climate change. And so that behoves people like myself who spent 40 years thinking and talking and working out how do we make this, ecologi- this transition to a more ecologically and socially just economy. You can't afford just to sit back and say... I'm going to wait for the perfect conditions or I'm going to wait for the perfect party or I'm not going to talk to that person or this person. I think we've a slight obligation to talk and work with everyone, including in government and if not in opposition. Um, so I've always had that view. Fairly good chance the Greens will be in government next time out, isn't there? Pat? I think if Eamon had his way, they would have, been, they would have joined the government in, uh, in 2016, but uh, the, numbers, uh, the numbers didn't stack up to uh, to make that a reality but um yeah i think there uh, i think there is a strong possibility he will need more seats uh, he has chance uh, i think of getting those in a couple of uh, constituencies what are what are good prospects for for the greens next time out it's sort of the classic sort of dublin suburban constituencies Golly cork monster yeah cork Golly cork we could possibly yeah um, you do need loud. numbers just from my experience yeah. in government you, you do need i've saying i said we need about 6 tds just from my own experience if you're to contribute in government you have to cover the whole government your responsibility you've collected cabinet responsibility that's a strength as well as an obligation and but to do it you need colleagues who are covering every brief so you know what's going on um, and that's what we need we need about one in 20 people to have this view that the for Ireland now we're willing to lead this country to lead and be green and go green and I think we may surprise people I hope we start that in the local and European elections um, and that'll give us strength it's happening in Europe the Greens are on 20 plus percent in Germany at the moment same in Holland same in Belgium same across a whole range of different countries because there's a wider collective consciousness. The big, think of the bigger picture of what's going on in the world. There's a disillusion about the kind of economic and political model that was so strong for 30, 40 years. The collective response to that can't be a nationalist one or just a kind of a, uh, you know, if, if, if you're not believing the market, will you believe in some kind of nationalist autocratic flag-waving, simplistic, exclusive kind of uh, concept. The Greens are representing globally now a future which actually people can get in behind and which is needed anyway. So I think, I'm hoping that that'll happen in Ireland the same way it's happening in our European colleague countries at the moment. Final final thought on that, Pat. I mean, it is, as, as Eamon points out, it is. The, the Greens are essentially the the main party of opposition, for example, now in, in, in Germany. I don't see any reason why we wouldn't plan to have a Green Chancellor at the next election. So, so, so they seem to be supplanting the parties, the traditional parties of the centre left in in other European countries. Do you think? Well, I think any it's a consequence of one of, of the. Uh, I no, in the way that's happened in Germany, because you don't have this great mass of social democratic votes 
are, are votes that traditionally voted for the Social Democratic Party now looking for a home in the way that the collapse of Social Democrats in Germany has provided a lot of those votes um, for uh, for the Greens. But I think it is eminently possible that Eamon comes back with several seats after uh, after the next election and is a force in the construction of a government in the period after that general election because one of the things that the fracturing of our... Uh, of our political system, the part fracturing of it that has happened as a consequence of the the, the, the shake-up um, after the economic crash is that there's now almost these two distinct phases um, in, in, involved. One, the general election, and then the period of a few months after the general election when the lead parties scramble to put together uh, a governing coalition. The bigger your numbers uh, of TDs in that, the more of a chance you have. It's a more traditional continental European it is, model. It, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, it is. And I expect that is what will happen after after the next election. That's, that's the next 100 years at all, Aaron. There you go. There's something to look forward to. (laughs) On that note, we'll leave it. Eamon and Pat, thanks very much for coming in today. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks very much to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider may be. That includes Spotify these days. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are always very welcome. You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 